Mark chapter 11, please. And let's read from verse 11. I think if we go down to the verse 23, we'll get sufficient. Jesus entered into, the, into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out into Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow when, he, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And he would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering, saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Amen. This is the Word of God, and the Lord will bless the reading of His Word. Let's still our hearts in prayer for just a moment. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Uh, we thank You, Lord, for harvest time, for Your provision, Your daily provision. Thank You, Lord, for the wonderful standard of living that we enjoy in this land. But we thank You for the greatest provision of all, Jesus Christ. We thank You, Lord, that when Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. We bless Thee. The Savior has power to lift, lift the sinner out of his sin, power to give him deliverance from that sin, power to purge, purge that sin from his account. And, O Lord, we pray that Christ will be glorified this evening. Turn our eyes upon Jesus. We pray that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and of his grace. Fill us now with thy Holy Spirit, we ask. We need thee every hour, but especially at this hour. Lord, we pray for help. We pray for power. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Folks, I want to do something perhaps maybe a little bit unusual. I want to speak on all the events and the aspects of what we have read from Mark chapter 11, verse 11, really through 23. Um, I suppose I want to focus uh, primarily at the, on the, the, the withered fig tree. But the, withered, the story of the withered fig tree is intertwined around the cleansing of the temple, and it's also linked to the comments that the Savior makes in verse 22 and 23. I believe 
that they're all linked together. The Holy Spirit has so ordered and choreographed the Word of God in that respect that He has joined these, these items together. Now, I don't really need to make any kind of introduction this evening to grab your attention. Sometimes a preacher will tell a story that uh, will inspire your intention or maybe give a quote that will grasp your attention. I don't need to do that this evening because these events are intriguing in and of themselves in that they are destructive events. The withering of the tree, the cleansing out of the temple and the turning over of the tables— and then the words of Christ referring to the casting of the mountain into the sea. These are intriguing in and of themselves because it presents us with a, a picture of what we could call the destructive Christ. And that's really the title that I want to give the message this evening. In this Bible reading, the one who cures makes a curse. The one who is usually so tender turns over the tables in what many have mistaken as a rage. The creator of the mountains, the creator of the landscape, speaks about the collapsing of the mountains into the sea. And therefore, that immediately draws attention to these words. And before we go any further, let me just remind you that the Lord Jesus Christ has both aspects to His character. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that cures. He is the cure for all our sins and all our needs. He is the balm of Gilead. He is the one that can take the life that has been broken for many, many years of sin, and He can heal that life and transform that life in a glorious way. Nobody else can do what Jesus can do. But yet Jesus Christ is also the one that curses. He's the one who says, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire. It's the same Lord. It's the same person. Jesus Christ is the one that draws to Himself. His arms are wide open upon the cross of Calvary, inviting sinners to Himself, inviting all men, rich and poor, black and white, high birth, low birth, inviting all to Him. And He invites you this evening. Tenderly, He invites you to Himself for salvation to come and receive the incredible gift of eternal life from His hand. And yet, the very same Lord was the one who spoke to the Pharisees and said, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. Same Lord, same person. Now, as I say this evening, I want to focus really on, uh, we'll begin with the, the treatment of the, the Lord's treatment of the fig tree. But then, as I said, it's intertwined, and you'll see that in the reading. It appears the fig tree, the subject of the fig tree, appears before and after the cleansing of the temple. And then there are verses 22 and verse uh, 23. It relates to the fig tree. So that's really the, the, the direction I want to go this evening. And just to give you an idea of the points, let me say I'm going to talk on the cursing of the tree, the cleansing of the temple, and then the casting into the tide. So let's consider, first of all, the cursing of the tree. The Lord Jesus Christ rides into Jerusalem on a colt, and He enters the temple. And He surveys the temple, and He departs from the temple. And then He goes to Bethany with the twelve, and He spends the night in Bethany. And the next morning, He returns toward Jerusalem. 
Now, he's not far from Bethany. And of course, the name of Bethany means the house of fruit. And he lays eyes on this fig tree. And we have those wonderful words in verse 12 that he was hungry. And those are truly wonderful words because they remind us that Jesus Christ is, is truly human. Absolutely God, but truly human. And we're in the countdown to Calvary here in this reading, where Jesus Christ will go and die for our sins. Be that substitute, be that Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. But to do that, He had to be a man. If He was not human, He could not save us humans. But praise God, He was truly human. He was hungry. Now, some read this passage, and they imagine, wrongly, that the Lord's hunger turned into anger. They imagine that in a, a sort of an unhinged fit, the Lord curses the tree out of disappointment because there's no fruit. Now, that's not even close to the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ is never out of control. The Lord Jesus Christ never acts vindictively. The Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely in control of what He's doing. You see, as, the, as Christ approaches the cross, He's teaching His disciples great lessons, lessons which will have a profound effect upon them, lessons which they will dwell upon and mull over later in life. And in the case of this fig tree, He is teaching a very, very important lesson. And the lesson is the need in all of our lives for fruit. The need in all of our lives for fruit. Now, let me say to you that it was totally appropriate for the Lord Jesus Christ to find fruit on that tree. Let's just uh, refresh our memory on verse 13. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And let me say again that it was totally appropriate for the Lord Jesus Christ to expect to find fruit in that tree. You see, the fig tree works in a very, or grows in a very specific way. The fruit grows first, and then the leaves grow out over the fruit. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ looked and saw the leaves, it was appropriate for Him to think that there would be fruit underneath it, especially when we come to the end of verse 13, and it says, for the time of fruits was not yet. And what that means is the time of fruit harvest was not yet. So there was leaves on the tree. It was not the time of harvest yet, so it was appropriate for him to, to, to expect there to be fruit under the leaves. But fruit there was not, for whatever reason, for whatever the condition of this tree, there was no fruit. Can I say this to you, gently, that the same could be said for many lives in Ulster tonight? There should be fruit, but fruit there's not. There's not fruit. And I'm talking about the fruit of salvation, the fruit that salvation produces. Many lives in Ulster have been touched with years and years and years of gospel preaching. Maybe you have in this house. You're in that position. 
You're touched with years and years of faithful gospel pre preaching, but yet there's no fruit of salvation. And the roots of your life has been dug around by the preacher. The preacher has taken the gospel spade, and he has dug around the, fruit, the roots of your life. And you've heard strong preaching condemning sin. You don't need me to tell you that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You don't need me to tell you that there's none righteous, no, not one, for you've heard it over and over and over again faithfully from this very pulpit. The gospel preacher has reminded you of the love of Christ. Many a time the love of Calvary has been presented to you. Time after time. Jesus, lover of my soul. You know. You know that Jesus Christ loves sinners. You're not, you're not fooled by this claptrap where, where false prophets tell you that Jesus Christ came for other reasons. You know that Christ came to Calvary to save your soul. You know it. It's been presented to you. The tender invitation of Christ has been laid before you week in, week out. The simplicity of coming by faith. You know how to come. Simply take that step of faith and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. You know the necessity of repentance. You know that as you come to Christ, you must desire to turn away from, from the life of sin. There must be that desire there. Of course, without the power of God, you cannot turn away. But nonetheless, there must be that desire. And yet, there's no fruit. No fruit of repentance. No desire to change the way. No conversion to Christ. No running to the Savior. Just the outward leaves of religiosity. Just good church-going folks, as they'd say of our part of the country. Folks, when the Lord Jesus Christ saves an individual, there's always fruit. They're a new creature in Christ. The old things are passed away. All things are become new. There's new fruit, all right. There's the fruit of the Spirit, the ninefold fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc. The fruit of holiness. There's the love of the Lord, the love of the things of God, the love of the Word of God, the love of the people of God. Loving the service of God. Jesus Christ Himself says, Ye shall know them by their fruits. Let me ask you, do you have the fruit of conversion? I'm not asking you, can you remember a date? I'm not asking you, can you remember a meeting? I'm not asking you, can you remember a prayer? The Lord Jesus Christ is passing this way this evening, and He's pulling back the leaves of religiosity, and He's looking for fruit, not foliage. He's not just looking for a profession, He's looking for proof. You know, apparently there's about 340 million Christians in persecution throughout this world. Number one country in this world is North Korea for persecution. Tell me if you're in North Korea and you're arrested, brought to court on the charge of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence? Would there be enough evidence? Proof? Fruit? Folks, the Lord Jesus Christ looked at that tree. He lifted those leaves. He found nothing, and He spoke the Word. And the power of God acted. 
And the same voice that said to the centurion servant, or that spoke healing to the centurion servant, the same voice that raised Lazarus from the dead, the same voice that said to damsel, I say unto thee, arise to Jairus' daughter, that same voice brought death, withering to the fig tree. You know, folks, there's a very powerful illustration, a very solemn illustration at the hand of our Lord. You see, for the one without the fruit of salvation, there's going to be eternal withering, not ceasing to exist, but eternal withering. I read in the book of Revelation that those that were not written, whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life, were cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Oh, they did not cease to exist. They existed, conscious, no escape, no parole, no second chance. But they withered there forever. I often think that hell is a, it's an awful twist on the motto of the Free Presbyterian Church, Arden said, Verens, Two verbs, burning yet living, burning yet living, burning yet living. Oh, you better have fruit, folks. You better have fruit. There's the cursing of the tree, and then there's the cleansing of the temple. You know, folks, if you really want to hit a man where it hurts, hit him in the wallet. Hit him in the wallet. That works for the vast majority of people. Most people in well-off societies don't like the idea of losing money. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. These verses are set in a very tense situation in Jerusalem. They reckon there's about two to three million people came into Jerusalem for the Passover. And the Roman, the Roman authorities were on high alert, to put it in today's terms. And the Lord Jesus Christ took that explosive situation and he just struck a match and threw it in there. Let's read verses 15 to 17 to refresh the memory. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the, ta the tables of the money changers and the seat of them that sold doves, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the, through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves." And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and saw it how they might destroy him. The Lord Jesus Christ enters the temple and he continues the destruction. He turns over the tables. Now, I would like you to fo focus in verse four, in 17, rather. And, uh, you probably heard me raise my voice when I said the word. I'd like you to focus on the word nations. My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. God chose the Jewish people to be the missionaries to the world. God chose the Jewish people to bear the truth of God and salvation to the world. And that goes a long way in explaining what's happening currently in the Middle East, of course. God chose Jerusalem as his eternal capital. Why? because Jerusalem stands at the crossroads of the world. Europe, Africa, Asia, and in the middle, Jerusalem. 
Just like Christ was searching for fruit on the tree, Christ was searching for fruit in the temple. The Savior was looking in the temple to see Jewish people leading Gentiles to himself, to salvation. But instead of evangelism, what did he see? Commercialization. Commercialism. You know, there's many a church like that. There's many a church like that. You go in and there's no gospel, there's no evangelism. Somebody comes and they never hear of Jesus Christ. All they're interested in is making people better off. Under the guise of social work, just making them better off. That's what was happening here. Commercialization. How did it happen? Well, there was a gentleman called Annas who was high priest. He was the first person that interrogated the Lord Jesus Christ before his death. And Annas was a businessman, very, very intelligent guy. He saw an opportunity. There were many, many sacrifices at Passover time. It's estimated that one, in one particular year, there were 255,000 lambs sold in one Passover week. People needed sacrifices, and where there's a need, there's an opportunity for profit, isn't there? And when folks arrived at Jerusalem, Annas made sure that there was animals for them. He had a captive clientele, and of course, he raised the prices appropriately. And then there was the temple tax that needed to be paid. It was commanded by the Lord. And Annas there too spotted an opportunity because you've got people coming from all different nations, and they've got different currencies, so he set up the, the Bureau de Change, the little booze, to change into the temple currency. And of course, the operators of those booths couldn't expect to do They couldn't be expected to do that for nothing. They would want their cut. And so by the time Jesus Christ comes to the temple in Mark chapter 11, it's like a farmer's market on steroids. It's like a mixture between a farmer's market and the London Stock Exchange. And on top of that, if you look at verse 16, it says, Jesus would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. On top of what was already going on, there were people who were using the temple as a shortcut. You see, the temple was massive. It was huge. And it sort of got in the way. If you had to go from your place of work to somewhere on the opposite side of the temple, well, you had a long walk to go round, so they just didn't go round. They just tripsied through the middle, through the courts of God. Made the temple a shortcut. And if someone wanted to find the way of salvation, if they really wanted God, they couldn't have heard their ears. The bleating of lambs, the mooing of cows, the clinking of money, the shouting of all the sellers, the hustle and bustle of the morning traffic, couldn't have heard your ears. And the Lord Jesus Christ comes without warning, and he scatters the changers, and he scatters the chancers. And he shuts out the commercialists and the salesmen, and he stops the cutting through of the temple. Can you see him? Can you see him shooing them out? I can see those traders, those traders in their eyes standing out on their heads like organ stops, seeing the wee piles of gold going all over the place. And then the shock turns to rage, rage against Christ. Now, you know, they probably expected the Savior to come in and cleanse the temple of all the Gentiles so that it would be a, a Jews-only club. Instead, the Lord Jesus Christ came into the 
court of the Gentiles, and he cleansed it for the Gentiles so that all nations could come to Christ. Now, don't you think that Christ acted rashly? Please do not think that Jesus Christ acted rashly. He did not. He never lost control. In fact, if you turn to chapter 11 and verse 11, before this, before even he curses the tree, Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, verse 11, and when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve, and on the morrow when he was come to Bethany, he was hungry. Before he cursed the tree, the day before he went to the temple, he did a reconnaissance. In other words, a review. He went to Bethany, he slept on it, and the next day he went to town in more ways than one. He was not acting rashly at all. This was a considered action, putting a noise out of the house of God. You know, folks, the devil loves to fill your head with noise, doesn't he? Maybe you're a Gentile in Lisbon, and you're starting to think about Christ. You're starting to think about getting saved and giving your heart to the Savior. You're starting to realize that you've got an eternal soul. You realize that you've got sin also, and that's a huge problem. You're questioning, where will I spend eternity? You realize there's only two options, heaven or hell, paradise or perdition. Maybe you've been to a funeral recently, and you've been forced to think about death. None of us really like thinking about death, do we? We sort of just shuffle it on. But maybe you've been forced to put the black tie on, and the subject of death has come up front and center. And what comes after death? Boy, the devil doesn't like that one little bit. He doesn't want you to think that way. Satan has a very simple motto. It's not complicated, you know. It's, it's I'm going down and I'm taking as many as I can with me. He doesn't want you quietly thinking on the spiritual things. doesn't want you reading the Scriptures, listening to the prayers, listening to the preaching of our brother here. So what does he do? He turns up the noise. Turns up the noise. Yeah? Fill your mind with business. Fill your mind with work. Fill your mind with commercialism. Maybe he'll even get you to take a shortcut. <laughs> You're in the, 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 the service this evening. You're thinking about the things of God, but maybe in your mind he's, he's making you take a shortcut to work tomorrow. What will be going on when I get to the desk tomorrow, when I get to the machine tomorrow, when I get out into the field tomorrow? And he's going to take, a straight, uh, take you in a shortcut through the house of God. Anything, anything, but think about Christ. Well, you can see the people in the temple there, can't you? They're waiting in their queues at their stalls, and they're chatting. They're chatting about God? No, of course not. They're chatting about the scandal, the social gossip, any, anything else the devil can fill their head with about the news, about their friends, about the state of the country. The devil will fill your head with it. It's coming out of your ears so long as you don't think about Christ. And I would guarantee he's doing it here this evening. But maybe the Lord Jesus Christ is turning over tables in your mind. 
Maybe Jesus Christ is turning over tables in your mind. And you're starting to get challenged about the lack of fruit and about the fact that you're not repentant. You're not converted. And maybe you're starting to feel uncomfortable. And all you can think about is what will happen to my soul? The blackness of darkness from all eternity. How awful a cost if my soul should be lost and in hell if I die as I am. Maybe the Lord is starting to turn your mind back to its intended purpose, back to thinking on Him, starting to take you to Calvary. Maybe tonight you can see the cross lifted high, Jesus Christ dying for you because He loves your soul. It was the curse of the tree the cleansing of the temple, and last but very quickly, I want you to consider the casting into the tide. Let's look at verses 22 and 23. Well, let's go from 21 to tie it in. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering, saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that these things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Here's another destructive topic in very close proximity to the other two maybe even more destructive than the other two when you consider Christ is talking about a mountain crashing into the sea. And can I say this? I believe that this gives the key to the whole text. The Lord's talking about this great mountain that comes crashing down, it avalanches into the sea, it's cast into the deep, into the tide, a catastrophic event. And what brought about this catastrophic event? Faith. Have faith in God. Faith is a key to the whole text, I believe. Faith is what Christ was looking for when he cursed the tree. Really? Verse 21, Peter mentions to the Savior, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. How does Christ respond? Verse 22, have faith in God. And what I believe he's really saying, I, I suggest this to you, Peter, the fruit that I'm looking for is faith. I'm looking for folks that are living by faith. That's the proof of salvation. People who are not faking it. People who are not pretending. They're living lives every day where they trust me. The Lord Jesus Christ went into the temple. What was he looking for? He's looking for faith looking to see Gentiles of all nations coming to salvation. What did he find? He found a load of noise. No faith, faith is such a powerful thing. Faith in Christ. Faith in the Messiah. I believe that Christ was speaking literally, by the way, here in verse 22. I believe that faith is the power to do precisely what he said it could do, to tear mountains down. I'm not going to allegorize this away. I believe faith has the power to do precisely what Jesus Christ said it could do, 
The reason that we haven't seen it is because our faith is so puny. But I think there's something, or let me make an application in a different direction. I, I believe that faith can shift an even greater mountain. Yeah? I believe the person that overcomes the noise of Satan and commits their soul by faith into the hands of Jesus Christ, puts faith in his crosswork alone. You see, the mountain of their sin, it can be cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness. Boys, I want to tell you, my sin is like a mountain. Your sin is like a mountain. And it's growing bigger every day. Every day, sinful thoughts, sinful words, sinful actions, sinful intentions before the sinful actions, mounting up higher and higher and higher and higher, not getting less, but reaching up to the sky, and we're getting buried under the quantity of our sin into the deepest of hell. But you see, faith in Christ, faith in Christ can take that obnoxious mountain of sin and send it forever into the sea of God's forgetfulness, never to be remembered anymore. How do I know that? Because in the Old Testament, there was a man called Micah. And in Micah chapter 7 and verse 19, he says this, He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You and I both have a mountain of sin to our name, not getting any smaller, and it's going to bury us in a lost sinner's hell. Will you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ this evening? Christ will remove that mountain. He'll remove, he'll remove the record of sin. He'll cleanse you in his precious blood. He'll give you the gift of eternal life. But folks, the time is now. Now is the accepted time. Not next gospel meeting when the Reverend Higginson is preaching. Not next week. Not in a few years when you've done what you would like to do. It's in your mind to do. Now. Now is the day of salvation.